This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author Alexis M. Smith discusses her new novel, Marrow Island. Then PW Reviews director Louisa Ermolino previews PW's fall announcements issue. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So I, I see uh, our friend Mary Roach, who we yes. uh, just spoke with on a previous show, um, is on the hardcover nonfiction bestseller list. She is indeed at number six, Grunt, The Curious Science of Humans at War. We had a great talk with her yeah, that was about, a nice conversation. Uh, about how she did the research. First of all, how the idea came to her, but then mm-hmm. how she did the research. It was really good. So please go back to the archives. Take a listen. It's really good. We say with compassion and dark humor, Roach uh, delves into a, the world of military scientists and their drive to make combat more survivable for soldiers. So it's nice to see that on the bestselling list. Mm-hmm. And so number six. Number six. And then we have just above at number five, uh, Chuck Klosterman, who whenever he's got a book of essays or thoughts coming out, it does make it right to the bestseller list. We gave this one a starred review. It's called, But What If We're Wrong? Thinking about the present as if it were the past. Klosterman here in our review, we say, conducts a series of intriguing thought experiments in this delightful new book about how we conceive of the future. We, we also say at the very end, he remains one of the most insightful critics of pop culture writing today. And this is his most thought-provoking and memorable book yet. And he's written quite a few. So that's at number five. And uh, for, for a while, he was the ethicist columnist at the uh, at the New York Times Magazine. Hmm. And then we have three cookbooks. One is by Freddie Prinze Jr., the actor, son of Freddie Prinze. And this is called Back to the Kitchen, 75 Delicious Real Recipes and True Stories from a Food-Obsessed Actor at number 17. Uh, he was also, he was in Scooby-Doo and She's All That. And uh, he is married to Sarah Michelle Geller. And uh, this is a book of recipes that, uh, that highlights his uh, Puerto Rican heritage and you know, growing up in New Mexico. So that's at number 17. Then at number 20, we have kind of an interesting one. This is a uh, by Deborah Smith, the Jersey Shore Cookbook, Fresh Summer Flavors from the Boardwalk and Beyond. And this is one of three cookbooks I've seen kind of highlighting uh, the food, the cuisine, the drink and culture of New Jersey that goes beyond the Jersey Shore. I mean, uh, here, this is a Jersey Shore, but it goes beyond the, the, the TV cliches. show, the cliche. Yeah, exactly. So you've got recipes from Asbury Park, Belmar, Brad. Beach, Seabright, Wildwood, and uh, everything from breakfasts to lunches, starters. So this, I was really surprised uh, to see that this was something like this was on the bestseller list, but there you have it. So somebody finally figured out the Garden State might have some vegetable gardens. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it was good. And then number 21, we have a cocktail recipe book called Smuggler's Cove 
Exotic Cocktails, Rum, and the Cult of Tiki by Martin and Rebecca Kate. Uh, this is from 10 Speed Press. And Martin Kate and his wife, Rebecca, are the proprietors of San Francisco's Smuggler's Cove, one of the nation's top tiki bars. Uh, here we say tiki culture is enmeshed with rum, and the authors offer a masterclass on it, covering its history in many varieties, as well as digressions on coring pineapples for cocktails and where to score cocktail umbrellas. So it's kind of cool to see. We've been seeing a lot more cocktail books in the uh, last couple of years, but uh, they're becoming even more exotic and uh, like this one right here with uh, Tiki Garden. So finally, we have a book uh, that's at number 24, which pubbed uh, in 2015, October, called Humans of New York. Brandon Stanton. Um, and so he's on the list uh, this year again. Huh. So we also had a nice chat with him. So for mm. those of you who are dicking around in the archives, I recommend pulling up that interview too. That was a good time. Yeah, definitely was. Well, uh, we have a new number one in fiction, End of Watch by Stephen King. No surprise to see it at the top of the list. Uh, it's first week out. It sold over 74,000 copies, which is wow. um, not small potatoes. We gave it a starred review saying after two straightforward crime thrillers, uh, King Torques, this third and final novel featuring retired Detective Bill Hodges back into his trademark territory. So this uh, continues the story mm -hmm. of Mr. Mercedes, Finders Keepers, and... Uh, Hodges suspects that the mass murderer he captured has been faking his catatonia, and uh, there are rumors circulating that the killer is actually able to move objects with his mind, uh, and it turns out that he's found a way to project his personality into others and commandeer them as his organic wheelchairs. Wow. Creepy phrase. We say King's Legion of fans will find this splice of mystery and horror a fitting finale to his Bill Hodges trilogy. Great. Gave a starred review, um, getting rave reviews all over the place. So that's at number one. Number four, we have The House of Secrets by Brad Meltzer with Todd Goldberg. Meltzer is a longtime bestseller, author of The Fifth Assassin. And uh, Goldberg joins him to launch a series with a conspiracy-laden spy novel. We say it's at its best when it's gleefully cutting the legs out from under the genre's tropes. Mm. And uh, there's amnesia, there's uh, FBI agents, there's a cult TV show investigating the unexplained. Uh, the authors, we say, toss plenty of conspiracy novel zaniness into the mix, but they also temper things nicely even as the tensions escalate. So this is right. slight but highly satisfying. Yeah. Uh, so that's at number four. At uh, number eight, Dishonorable Intentions by Stuart Woods. This is the 38th novel starring Stone Barrington. I think we talk about every single one as it comes up because they're always on the bestseller right. list somewhere. Yeah. So I uh, probably don't need to fill in too much, but the gist is that Stone is a suave, well-connected New York City attorney whose uh, latest lady friend uh, happens to be the ex-wife of the villain who's linked to the Russian mob. Mm, right. So we said that Woods leaves uh, a lot of the intriguing plot up in the air, presumably to be continued in a later installment as the main action speeds toward Boris's final foolish attempt to get even with Stone. So we know our hero's going to come right. through just fine. At number 11 is I Almost Forgot About You by Terry McMillan. This has a, a really lovely cover and... Uh, we say in our review that Macmillan revs up middle age in a rambunctious showcase of the best-selling author's keen ear for language, clear eye for the give and take of sex, love, and commitment, and heartfelt faith in happy endings. Mm. And uh, it's an excursion through early, middle, and old age crises, and uh, there's no better 
creator than Macmillan, according to our review, of female characters who refuse to give up on dreaming or looking back to find the way forward in their noisy, messy, joyous lives. This looks ripe for beach reading. Right. Sure does, yeah. Definitely a pure, pure summer blockbuster fare. And uh, finally, down at number 15, we have Homegoing by Yag Yassi. Um, we gave this a starred review. The author was one of our writers to watch. Um, it's a really, really exciting debut. I'm seeing a lot of people talking about it. Uh, our review says that this amazing debut offers an unforgettable page-turning look at the histories of Ghana and America as the author traces a single bloodline across seven generations, mm. beginning with uh, two half-sisters in Ghana, um, one of whom is married to a British colonizer, and the other is captured into the British slave trading system. So uh, already a lot going on there from the very beginning. And uh, in both America and Ghana, prosperity rises and falls from parent to child. Love comes and goes. And the character's trust of white men wavers. Mm. Uh, these story elements purposely echo like ghosts, as history often repeats itself. But Gassy writes each narrative with remarkable freshness and subtlety. So look for this one to hit the award shortlist. It's got that It got does that have that vibe. Yeah, it really does. You're right. And that's what's going on on the fiction list. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Alexis M. Smith tells us about all the terrifying things that can happen on an island. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ron Miscavige, and I'm the author of Ruthless, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Alexis M. Smith on the line. Her new book is Marrow Island. Hello, Alexis. So glad you could join us. Hi, thanks for having me. So the novel's uh, central character is Lucy Bowen, who's a journalist who decides to return to this island cottage of her childhood. Tell us about this island. Well, it's uh, based on an island or, or a couple of islands in the San Juans in Washington State, uh, but I did make a couple of fictional islands um, for the setting of the story. And uh, it's, I don't know how familiar most people are with the San Juans in Washington, but they're, um, they're very near Canada, up near Victoria um, and British Columbia and uh, right near Harrow Strait, where um, a lot of ships come in off the Pacific into Puget Sound. And they're a really beautiful, um, remote uh, set of islands, and it was sort of a perfect setting for the story I wanted to tell about the environment and um, tragedy and climate change and, and all sorts of other things. So who is Lucy? And, and uh, let's talk a little bit about what made her decide to, to return this, uh, to the island. Well, in the world of, of Marrow Island, uh, it's, it's not quite the world that we live in in our present. It's in this story there, um, I imagined that there had been a big earthquake in the Cascadia subduction zone mm. in the 1990s. Um, this has been in, in the news recently, um, with Catherine Schultz's article in the New Yorker, um, we are still waiting for the big one in the Northwest, but um, I wanted to imagine that a, a big earthquake happened a while ago. And, and as we all know from Catherine's article, this earthquake is going to devastate the region and it will cause a lot of man-made disasters too, because 
we don't have the infrastructure really to um to handle it and so in in the story uh an oil refinery on a, on one of these islands that i imagined um catches fire uh, as a result of the earthquake and uh, because of the widespread de- devastation, um, first responders can't get there. People die. Um, and one of them is Lucy's father, who is working at the at the refinery. And uh, so this is in the 90s in the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lucy's coming back 20 years later because, uh, you know, for a lot of reasons. Her career is sort of faltering. She's an environmental journalist. And she she never quite got over uh, her father dying, and her mother has sort of moved on. And and uh, one of her best friends from childhood has moved to Marrow Island, to a colony of people who are there um, working to clean up the uh, environmental um, devastation from that um, refinery fire. And they have been quite successful. And so Lucy's sort of going back to see her friend Katie and to find out what they've done on the island and sort of reckon with what has happened in the in the 20 years since the earthquake. So tell us a little bit about Katie, who's got her own story and her own motivations here. Katie is, uh, she's sort of that, that girlhood friend that um, some of us uh, had when we were growing up who was a little on the on the rebellious or wild side, uh, you know, I wanted to explore in, in the relationship between Katie and Lucy, um, uh, this kind of wild friendship that girls can have sometimes where you push each other <laughs> to do things that maybe you shouldn't do or to experiment. Um, and, uh, so these two had this really strong bond after the earthquake and, um, and Katie sort of, uh, went one direction, which was that she she went off to college and then dropped out of college and ended up going to this um, island colony and and following this quasi religious group that um, was ministering to the earth. And uh, her motivations are are kind of murky for for Lucy. Lucy always kind of wanted to understand Katie, but never quite could, never quite did get her. And um, yeah, so uh, there's a little bit of a mystery there for for Lucy. She's coming, she's going to see Katie to sort of figure out um, uh, not just like what happened with their relationship. They haven't seen each other in a number of years, but also to maybe maybe try to figure out her feelings for Katie in general. But uh, it was Katie who, I, if I'm not mistaken, who mailed a letter to Lucy. Yes. Yeah. She's. She sends this sort of intriguing letter to um, to Lucy, inviting her back, you know, professing their her love for her, her you know friendship for her, and wanting to reconnect with her, and um, and also kind of presenting this. Um, uh, I think the idea is that she's um, she knows how to manipulate Lucy in some ways, and she she wants her for something, but Lucy doesn't really know exactly what. So uh, describe to us a little bit more about the island. How many people are living there? What does it look like? What's the, uh, uh, is it all farmland? Is it, or is there a patch of forest, a patch of woods there? Yeah. So the, the island and the San Juans actually are, are, have a number of different sort of ecosystems, 
even within a small island. So the island is maybe four square miles or something like that. And, and, um, but even on an island that that's, is that small, you can, you can have sort of like the sunny, warm side of the island. And then you have the more forested, wet, darker side of the island. And you can have, um, you know, sort of open swaths of, of, you know, tall trees with not much undergrowth and, um, and then you have very dense forested parts, and then you have parts that were developed at some point. Um, and in this case, um, there was settlement on on the San Juans. Um, Native Americans uh, used the islands for for many years, um, moving about them for for fishing and for seasonal activities. And and then when white people came, um, there were missionaries. And this particular island has um, an old church, an old chapel that's a remnant from the missionary days, and uh, part of the island also has a state park on it. Um, back during the the days of the pig wars, um, there were some military outposts on, on islands there, um, and uh, so there's, there's sort of a mix of um, remnants of different historical activities, whether Native American or or white people, and um, so there's some developed sort of farmland, and um, it's a it's a great area for farmland, actually. And um, tell us um, a little bit about the the religious community that's there, because that plays a pretty central role. Yeah, so it is um, a group they call themselves Marrow Colony, and uh, they are led by a former Catholic sister who um, felt. Through her social activism, she was drawn to environmental causes and um, and felt called to leave the church or was asked to leave the church. It's um, sort of left a little unclear and and um, she she's so she leaves the church to um, pursue her activities ministering to a planet that she feels has been. Um, has been abused or um, not cared for in the way that that she believes that that God and the, the higher power um, has called on on humans to to do. Mm-hmm. So um, she's led people who are a sort of a mix of um, you know young idealistic folks who want to just um, you know sort of live freely and work with the land, and also some scientists who who felt called to do something about the environment and um, and other people who in the aftermath of the earthquake in the region have sort of found themselves with with no place to go um, having lost homes or um, you know livelihoods in in the area and so she has this this interesting mix about um, thirty five or so I think it's hard for me to remember all the details. <laughs> sure. But, um, thirty five or so people are living there in the colony, and they're all sort of working in this agrarian kind of um, you know, homesteading almost kind of system. But they've also integrated lots of like uh, you know gray water systems and sort of uh, more. They've they've integrated some technologies that we're using now more. Um, you know, solar ovens and and things like that to sort of make their their colony self-sustaining. So as you're describing this, I'm getting these really vivid cinematic images, and I finally realized that a lot of them are from the movie The Wicker Man, uh, because I, I feel like there are... The Wicker Man? 
because because there are these these parallels. The letter that brings the person to the isolated island yeah. where there's this weird religious colony was was that at all an, an intentional uh, connection or just pure coincidence? You know what? That is that's such that is so astute of you. <laughs> no one has asked me about the Wicker Man, but I love the Wicker Man. It's such a crazy story. It's, it's a bizarre, one, bizarre the, the, movie. The reboot was not well, was not yeah. so good, but. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I was thinking of the older one. Um, I did when I first started writing the story, um, uh, that was, the Wicker Man was definitely in my mind. Yeah. The, the idea of, um, insular sort of cultish activities on an island. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Cause that's so great for, for raising the, the tension and the suspense of everybody in this very isolated place that they can't really get out of. Yes. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the tension that that's created here. So you have about thirty five people. They're all is that the entire uh, uh, inhabitants uh, on the island? They all belong to this group. Yes. Yeah. Um, we when we meet um, when we meet Lucy uh, and she's sort of going back to the island. She meets. Uh, another character who's going to the island for the first time who's a park ranger. And um, he's going to check out the other side of the island from the colony where the, this abandoned state park is. And um, he's sort of initiating um, the possibility that the, the state is going to reopen the park and he's going to sort of do a survey and see what the the state of it is. And, um, and she meets him going out. So there are two sort of new characters to the population of the island Um in the beginning of the story, um, Lucy and Carrie. And other than that, yeah, it's this group who, um, who live on the island and are, they interact with people on other islands as well, but there's also a sense of kind of the tightness of the community that, that even on the other islands, people aren't necessarily going to, um, intrude on, on activities there, um, or, uh, betray them in any way. Women are very important to the story. They're very central. These interactions among women between Lucy and Katie, between them and and Sister Jay, who's who's running the colony. How did that shape the story? You know, I'm a, a woman writer who likes to read stories about strong female characters, and I don't think there was ever a question that that the story for me would be about anything other than. Um, women with, uh, women with agency, I guess, um, you know, doing what they thought was right or wrestling with ideas of what was right and, um, and acting on them. And I don't know, I don't know how to tell any other story. <laughs> um, I, I'll admit I'm, I'm not, um, necessarily the best writer of male characters. So I, I think maybe I'm just playing to what I know here. Um, although I, you know, I'm not a very good judge of my own, my own writing anyway. Maybe Carrie is a really believable character. <laughs> no. Um, I hope he is. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Um, it had never occurred to me to write anything other than a story about, about strong women. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. P. 
PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Alexis M. Smith, the author of Marrow Island. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the, the inspiration for this story, other than The Wicker Man, unless you want to, to get into that, too, because I've, I've, I admit to feeling a little pleased with myself for having pulled that out. Uh, the first seed of the story came from a crazy dream I had uh, right after my son was born, about eight years ago. And uh, it was incredibly vivid and it was just um I was not myself in the dream I was a character sort of flying over this island that had been devastated and um I could see that that part of the island was this sort of rust color and as we flew over the island and got to the other side it was bright green and I could see that there were people living there and that they had done something to rehabilitate uh, that part of the island. And um, and I knew that there was a nun there. <laughs> and that was the dream. It was this, this really bizarre dream. And, um, and I woke up and I knew immediately that it was a story that I needed to tell. And so that was what started thinking about how, um, how I could tell that story. Or and just even discovering what the story was. I really didn't know anything about the disaster at that point or the characters. Um, it was just this, this vivid image and this feeling of um, needing to know about what these people were doing on this island. Um, so that was that was the beginning, and that was eight years ago. And I started doing a lot of research and, and kept a notebook. I was finishing my first book at the time uh, with Tin House. Um, and I finished the book and went on book tour and um and this whole time I just kept a notebook, um, writing everything I could down that occurred to me and and um you know, reading some other books that I thought might be getting at um a similar feeling. Um, like Margaret Atwood's Surfacing is one of my favorite books and I reread it for sort of inspiration. It's a sort of woman in the wilderness story. It is a woman in the wilderness story. Um, and uh, yeah, and it just, it grew from there. This novel deals with an island, which is, I, I think, kind of ominously named Marrow Island, like Bone Marrow. And your first novel was called Glacier, mm-hmm. which was about, uh, uh, had a character named Isabel who works repairing, I guess, fixing damaged books uh, in her basement or in a basement. Yet, at a library, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yet the, uh, this book, and the book discusses a lot of Alaska's glaciers. And what, what draws you to physical topography? I think it was growing up in Alaska. Um, I lived there until I was 10. Both my parents were raised there. When you grow up in, uh, you know, we spend your formative years so close to so much nature that is both um, beautiful and and uh, exciting, but also, you know, aware of how easily you could die <laughs> in the wilderness. Um and in the elements, uh, I just have always been really attracted to the stories that come out of 
out of um, human interaction with the natural world. And um, I think that that was a huge part of, of glaciers, which was mm-hmm. semi-autobiographical. Um, I robbed a lot from my childhood for that, mm-hmm. for that novel. Um, uh, you know, and then it, I think it was just a natural progression because I'm, as an adult, really concerned about climate change and, um, and you know, what humans are doing uh, to the planet and what the planet is doing back to us in some ways. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, I feel compelled to, to keep writing stories about humans and, and the planet. Um, I think my childhood has, has a huge um, influence on that. <laughs> what was the significance of the environmentalism in, in, in this current novel when you were writing it? I think that I am pretty clearly on the, on the side of the planet as um, as a voice as I'm as I'm writing writing these stories through characters. Um, uh, I don't know that I'm I'm really writing. I had a, a, a question at a reading and someone asked me if Marrow Island was a call to arms or a mm. call to activism. That did I write it with the um, the desire that people would be stirred to do something about climate change or about preparing for disasters. Um, and I didn't really write it for those reasons. I really, I really wrote, I really write about the environment to make people feel, I think, um, and to think about their place in the world more. And if that makes them want to do something like, um, you know, give up their car or, or, you know, stand against oil trains, which is um, a big issue in the Northwest right now, um, are the oil tra- trains coming from the, the fields in um, North Dakota and coming through our natural areas and our, and our cities. And we just had a derailment a few, um, a few weeks ago and uh, right in a town near an elementary school. And, uh, you know, if, if it makes people think and feel more about about what um, is happening about them around them right now, um, then that I feel like I've done my job. And, and um, yeah, I'm, I, I don't know if that really answers the question. Um. <laughs> sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you grew up in the Pacific Northwest, or was it Alaska? Uh, Pacific Northwest generally, yeah. We lived in Alaska until I was 10, and then we moved to Seattle. So I lived in Seattle through high school and um, moved to Portland when I was uh, 20. So I, I've been here almost 17 years. And then you 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 went out uh, east uh, to New England to Mount Holyoke and then returned. Yeah, I did. Yeah. <laughs> what, yeah. What was it? What was it about your your time at? What about your time at Mount Holyoke at a you know, all women's college? Did it inform your writing or the way you think? I, I have to say, four generations of of uh, women in my wife's family all attended Mount Holyoke. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think as a young woman, so I went to an, an all-girls high school. I went to a Catholic girls' school in Seattle, and um, that was part of the inspiration for the the sisters in the book. Mm-hmm. And um, and going to an all-girls high school, and also being an aspiring writer and a young feminist, um, the draw to a women's college. One of the seven sisters was was huge for me. You know, I really. Uh, Gloria Steinem was a hero. She went to Smith and, you know, I was a poet, so I loved Emily Dickinson and Emily Dickinson went to Mount Holyoke and, 
you know, I had this um, this idea of the ivy color, ivy covered brick buildings, and um, and you know, the rolling countryside of Western Massachusetts. And I had actually never been to Massachusetts when I applied to I applied to Smith down at Holyoke and got into both, but I chose Mount Holyoke and and um, I had never been. So when I showed up on campus, it was my first time in Massachusetts. And, um, I, it was hugely influential. I loved it. It was, um, being surrounded by crazy smart young women, um, my age and, um, being challenged, of course, by, uh, by really excellent teachers and, um, and also seeing a lot more privilege than I was used to, too. I mean, I, I definitely went to a privileged, uh, high school, uh, but, but even, even bigger, even more privileged. <laughs> Um, you know, going, going to a school back East, um, it was a really wonderful experience. And had, uh, had we not run out of money, I would have, I would have stayed for the full, the four years. But, um, as it was, I made some friends that I still have and, uh, they still consider me an alum, which is really sweet of them. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's, it was a great experience. And I think, um, you know, I think that it, it just, um, reinforced my, my feelings that, um, that women's voices are important and, and that, uh, we do good work in the world when we're, um, when we take the chance. So, um, tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. You mentioned that, uh, this novel is maybe already faded from your head a little bit. Um, uh, so, uh, what's, what's on your mind? <laughs> What's on your mind these days? Which happens to everybody, you know. To, I'm not. I'm not trying to take a dig at you there. Uh, I, I no. know lots of authors who pretty much, as soon as they're done with the book, that's it. They forget it. So, um, what's occupying your thoughts right now? You know, right now, um, I Orlando is definitely on my mind because mm-hmm. I'm a lesbian and I'm I'm married to a woman and uh, we have a. Uh, son from a previous relationship of mine, but, um, you know, uh, it, I'd have to say it really devastated me. And, um, and, you know, I think before that I was thinking a lot about, um, about the rape case in California and, um, you know, the, the young man who, who got a, a slap on the wrist and all of the, the other, women who have been uh rape victims whose whose perpetrators never even got a slap on the wrist. And I think I'm thinking a lot about these things because when I was a young feminist and I'm uh, an idealistic, you know, twenty something um out lesbian feminist, I really didn't think we'd be here today. I really didn't think that um that I would have friends who were afraid to take their children to the Pride Parade. This weekend, because they're afraid that there could be, um, you know, a crazy person with a gun or, uh, you know, it's 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 a little shocking to me that this is where we're at right now. And, and I have to admit that I'm feeling a little desperate about it. And, um, uh, you know, we're going to a vigil tonight uh, to uh, mourn our gay family who uh, were murdered uh, in Orlando and. Uh, yeah, so that's really, honestly, that is what is on my mind right now. I'm not writing about it or anything like that, but 
that's what's on my mind. <laughs> I th I think it's as as you said about the environment. You know what what's around us shapes us, and we have to decide how how and how much we directly grapple with it. Yes, definitely. Um, I'm definitely thinking about how. Uh, you know, my next book is sort of in my mind, and it'll be another novel. Uh, and and I have an idea, and I have said before that it'll be about um, it'll be about uh, fighting the um, patriarchy and class and racism, and you know, and that's that's a really bold general statement to make. It's both bold and vague at the same time. Because I don't really know how. I don't I don't really know how I'm going to uh, write a story that really does justice to um to all of those things all at once and um but I feel like it's it's something that needs to be done and that I can do it. I'll do it in my own way and um and yeah and I I encourage other writers to do the same too. It's I think we need to keep keep telling stories that, that mean something. We've been talking with Alexis M. Smith, and you can find her book Marrow Island in stores right now. Alexis, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Reviews Director Louisa Ermolino introduces the fall's hottest books, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Richard Zacks, the author of Chasing the Last Laugh, and we're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Reviews Director Louisa Ermolino is here to tell us all about the most exciting books we're going to be seeing this fall. Hi, Louisa. Hi. Always nice to have you on the show. So um, tell us a little bit, uh, just give us a quick overview of the, the fall announcements issue. Um, we do these issues twice a year. What do they cover? Well, um, they cover 15 categories, and it starts with August 1st and goes through to January 31st as a time period. And fall is a huge time for publishing, especially September and October. And this year is no exception. We have lots of big names coming out with books, some of them after a, a pretty long hiatus. Mm. So uh, you you uh, oversee a lot of categories, and um, which one do you want to talk to us about first? Do you want to talk about fiction, or do you want to jump into nonfiction? Well, I think literary fiction is having a big season. There's some really big names. There's Zadie Smith, Ann Patchett, Jonathan Safran Foer, Michael Shaben, Colson Whitehead. And Colson Whitehead's book is The Underground Railroad, which they were all over in BEA. And yeah, I remember I think, that, yeah. I think it's going to be a big, big book. Um, Zadie Smith has a book called Swing Time about two girls dreaming of becoming dancers. Shaben's novel is called Moonglow. It's billed as a tale of madness, war, adventure, sex, desire, love, and model rocketry. And then we have uh, Jonathan Safran Foer's here I Am, which unfolds over four tumultuous weeks in Washington, D.C. In Patchett's book, Commonwealth is about a family, parents, children, stepchildren, and what happens when things break up because of indiscretion. There's also Jacqueline Woodson, 
who's done YA, but been um, very successful. It's a novel about growing up African-American in Brooklyn in the 70s. That's called Another Brooklyn. And there's also Maria Semple, who wrote uh, Where Where Have You Been, Bernadette? Set in in Seattle, her new home. This is called Today Will Be Different, a domestic drama about a woman who decides to do the right thing in her family. And Alan Moore has come out with Jerusalem, and it's 1,280 pages. My goodness. (laughs) Wow. And that's kind of the highlights of literary fiction. Well, you really, I mean, there really are, as you said, some heavy hitters, some heavy hitters on that. I mean, you've Absolutely. got all the big guns there. And yeah. uh, when I was putting together the science fiction top 10 list, um, there were a lot of collections. I mean, I'm always interested in short fiction, but I was particularly struck by it this year. Um, a collection of novellas by Ursula K. Le Guin, um, also an anthology of translated mm. Chinese science fiction short stories. Um, we don't see so much translated short fiction here. Was there a similar trend in mainstream fiction or it's more about the novels? This um, year? I think it's more about the novels, although I have a personal feeling for short fiction. I have a collection coming out in August called Malafemina. Malafemina. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's always there's always more collections than anyone expects because the um, the idea is always that they don't sell, but sure. people love short fiction. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and I, I think um, there's nothing on the top ten list, but I don't think so. No, but um, certainly, you know, people that love short fiction love yeah. short fiction. And then the um, memoirs and biographies, we have two really big names. There's Bruce Springsteen with Born to Run and Amy Schumer, the girl with the lower back tattoo. And those both are, you know, could be million dollar sellers. I'm sure that's what the publisher hopes for. And both embargoed, I'm sure. Uh, Uh, Coming out right at the, uh, releasing right on pub date. Right. Yeah. And then there's um, there's a lot of music bios. We have two Beach Boys. We have um, Good Vibrations, Mike Love, and Brian Wilson. And hmm. his title is I Am Brian Wilson. <laughs> in, in case anybody wasn't, wasn't clear on that. Has any doubt. And in history, again, we go to um, characters. There's a book about Patty Hearst and the crime and trial. There's a book um, on Alessandro de' Medici. Mm. There's a book on the shore of Iran's dynasty, the Pahlavis, their final days. And, of course, always in history, there's war. The Civil War, um, the American Revolution, always popular. And this year we have one called In Wartime Stories from the Ukraine, from Crown, oh, Crown oh, which is interesting. So... Uh- did we manage to not have any World War II books, or they they must be in there somewhere? Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> there's all. There's always a list. few. There's yeah. Stalin's last American spy. That's the Cold War. That's not World War II. Actually, um, Genghis Khan. Yeah, so and um, the untold story of black women. So of ranging a little further afield in history. Yes. Yeah. Nice to see. Yeah. And mysteries we have. The Big Book of Jack the Ripper, edited by Otto Penzler. Mm. I've been seeing a lot of Jack the Ripper stuff lately. Jack, Jack the Ripper is like... Perennially um, popular. Yeah. He's just never going to go away. Harlan Coben has a new book called Home. Caleb Carr has one called Surrender. And Carl Heisen has one called 
Razor Girl. So there's big names there as well. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Rose, you had handled science fiction, but also the romance. Yeah, um, I think there were a couple of big themes in romance. One is that... um, series are wrapping up. So these you know, some popular series are, are closing out. Um, Debbie McComber is closing her Rose Harbor series. Stephanie Lawrence is finishing the Adventurers Quartet, which have been consistently getting outstanding reviews from us. Really, really great work. I mean, it, it's common in romance for, you know, maybe the first book is, makes a big splash. And then after that, the quality might drop a little or it might be more consistent, but not, you know, right. superlative. Um, Lawrence has really been keeping it going at a very, very high level, um, as she always does. Uh, and on the flip side, um, a, another thing is for authors to combine their series. So if they write different series, they'll do crossovers really? of, of their own. So Tessa Dare, who's personally one of my favorite authors uh, in Regency Romance, has two different series that she's bringing together uh, in, a, in a book called Do You Want to Start a Scandal? Which uh, I assume is meant to play in one's head to the tune of Do You Want to Build a Snowman? Or at least... <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's great. That's how, that's how I keep hearing it. Um, and uh, what else? Um, on the big name front, we have a big, big book from Susan Elizabeth Phillips um, coming out from tomorrow called First Star I See Tonight. Um, she's uh, always guaranteed to sell very well. And uh, I'm continuing to see some really exciting innovation happening in uh, queer romance. Mm. Um, there's a couple of very interesting gay romances on my top 10 list. Um, one about a gay Orthodox Jew who falls in love with a secular Israeli and uh, both men trying to figure out how to have their love within uh, their religion uh, or you know, in, in the case of one of them. And um, it, it's there's a lot going on there about the nuances within Judaism and Jewish characters are so rare to start with mm-hmm. uh, in romantic fiction and not always well handled. So we've seen from a couple of recent scandals in the genre. And uh, so seeing this um, you know, written by a Jewish author, is, uh, I'm, I'm very excited to mm-hmm. see how that works out. Um, and uh, the other same-sex romance on the top 10 list is Looking for Group by Alexis Hall, which is also very modern and topical and, uh, and that two people fall in love in an online role-playing game, except um, it turns out one of them who's been role-playing as a woman is actually a man. And uh, there's also some kind of uh, some lifestyle differences going on and that one of them spends all his time online and the other one has a life outside of the game. And so they have to figure out how to reconcile that. So again, very modern, um, very much concerns that I see real people having all the time. And uh, and that's by Alexis Hall, who uh, had a, a book on my best of the year list last year. And so um, pretty much guaranteed to be a good read. Do uh, you think um, romance novels always reflect the culture or that's a recent thing? Always. always been sort of they, they always, always reflect the culture. And it doesn't matter if it's historical or contemporary. Uh, I mean, the contemporary ones can address issues very directly, but historical novels, watching the historical treatment of, uh, or the watching authors create historically uh, 
almost inaccurate characters in order to reflect modern concepts of feminism, mm. for example, right. or of what is romantic. Um, you know, I'm sure many master's theses have been written <laughs> <laughs> on uh, on these different portrayals of how you know our understanding of the past and the way that we write about the past still comes from the present. And so uh, you, you see all these all these men now who are very um, thoughtful and supportive of you know, the, the women in their lives having careers and these very modern attitudes in these books that are supposedly set 200 years ago. Yeah. Uh, so um, it's, uh, it's often a difficult line for authors to walk. Uh, but yeah, it's, that's always, that's always been a theme because the whole idea of what's romantic, it used to be, uh, that women could not accept sexual advances without being seen as like they were too easy or they were fast. And so that's why you had the bodice rippers that you had the man who quote unquote forced the woman to do what she really wanted, which made it okay, but she had plausible deniability. And, uh, and now a lot of that has gone out the window as our mores have changed. And now you have very different conversations about consent, for example, uh, or uh, I just got in a historical romance that deals with um, the aftermath of mm. rape and, mm. uh, you know, how, how is that mm. handled in the historical setting? But again, from the perspective of a modern writer writing for modern readers. Right. So it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting to watch the genres change as uh, as attitudes change. Yeah. I was just reading a book about um, modern Indian sexuality, and it referred to the Kama Sutra, and there was advice to the courtesans never to always be very difficult before they consent to, I quote, union, because <laughs> men despise what's easily acquired, and that's all part of the right. great fantasy. Yep. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so these these things play out over and over in culture in different ways. And uh, it's I, I I always love seeing how they're handled by different authors who are writing for different groups of people. Um, you know, we have some romances that are very chaste. Uh, you know, there are Christian romances with particular themes about having faith that everything will come out okay and trusting in God and listening to that voice that that gives you moral direction. Everybody has their own approach to love, to partnership, to the idea of marriage and building mm -hmm. a family and joining families. And um, so there are lots of different ways to approach it. Yeah. And Mark, you were handling the cookbooks. Tell us yes, a little bit yeah. about what was going on there. Well, uh, one trend is not surprising, and that's uh, Cuban cookbooks that are mm -hmm. going to be coming out. And uh, we have one Cuba exclamation point recipes and stories from the Cuban kitchen by Dan Goldberg and uh Andrea Kuhn. And this is from uh, 10 Speed. So this is one highlight of, of a few cookbooks uh, on, on Cuba that will be coming out. And we're going to be seeing lots more, especially as more people are able to travel there. But what is interesting is this also, we also have a lot of heavy hitters on the list. We have Ina Garden, the Barefoot Contessa. This is cooking for Jeffrey, cooking for her husband. This is more home-cooked recipes. And we're, we're seeing kind of a return to home cooking, even by some who you don't think of as home cooking, such as Anthony Bourdain, which is his first book, cookbook in, in several years, uh, called Appetite's a Cookbook. And we know him from, from traveling the world sure. and eating all kinds of stuff. And this is stuff that he's uh, kind of whittled down to 
what one might be able to easily access and prepare in, in their own, you know, one's own kitchen. We also have Alton Brown, Everyday Cook. Um, he's a big name, and this is the first cookbook in five years from him. And this is, again, for... Uh, home cooks, so everyday cooking. We have Guy Fieri, who travels all over the place, uh, again, uh, in the U.S., uh, and he's got a cookbook. We've got uh, Mario Batali, another big name, so we've got some big names, who's, in the last two years, has turned his interest away from uh, solely Italian cooking to American cooking and traveling uh, across the U.S. to find recipes, uh, just kind of family, uh, family recipes that are popular in each region and presenting them here. And then a couple of, a couple of, we always have a couple of, uh, restaurant focused, uh, cookbooks. This one is Matza at Home by Nancy uh, Silverton from the, uh, LA restaurant. And, uh, the other one is Marcus Samuelson's Harlem restaurant, the Red Rooster cookbook. So lots of big names, lots of, um, different kinds of food, but seemingly all focused for home cook. And that's what we have. Has Mario Batali given up on awful? I, I probably, if he has for now, he'll come back to it. <laughs> and so there really is this sort of down-home vibe for for all of these. Are we moving away from molecular gastronomy and foams and gels and all that exciting stuff? I think this season, I, I think that that's something that uh, people will... Especially, you know, foodies, you know, I don't want to say foodies, but chefs, as they experiment, we're going to keep coming back to that and raising it to, to new levels. Um, but as, as far as this, this list, I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of return to, uh, to home cooking. And then perhaps in another year from now where we want to just reach out a little bit further and experiment. So, All right. Well, we'll watch for that pendulum yeah. swing the other way. Louisa, thank you so much for coming on the show. Always great to have you here. Thank and, you. Uh, lovely, it's always fun. Lovely to have this, uh, this overview of what's coming in Monday's yeah, issue. It's good. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Bridget Hios. I'm the author of It's Getting Hot in Here, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash bwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 